This is Hebrews 2020, We See Jesus, and it's increment 302, and this is Wednesday, August 30th, the year of our Lord, 2023. And the subject today, among other things, it is associated with Hebrews, but I'm going to call it Johannine Gems, Johannine Gems, certain insights from the fourth gospel called the Gospel of John, the Johannine Gospel, and we're going to blend some of the gems of John. It's been my intention for some time to at least deal with John again. I dealt with it before, but not as completely as I want to. And if I had the time, I might look at it again, or at least teach, teach a distillation of it again. And this is a few hints about what might come about that in that study. The Johannine gems then are related to Hebrews in its totality, but specifically with the themes of the great shepherd of the sheep in Hebrews 13.20, the climactic expositional verse in Hebrews and in relationship to the great shepherd of the, of the sheep, the good shepherd of John. And I also want to consider Jesus not only as the shepherd but the lamb, the judge and the judged, and the priest and the offering, etc. There are many things in which Jesus shows a versatility in the work of redemption that he performed for us and the work of perpetual salvation. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We know that you've opened a door that no one can shut. You've, as you shut doors that no one can open, you open doors that no one can shut. You've opened this door of opportunity for this message, and we know that no man can shut it. And we pray that you'll allow us the grace to make the most of this opportunity. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start by reading Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11 all the way through 17. For after all, we are doing a verse-by-verse study and exposition of Hebrews. Now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come. We know that as the alteration of the situation. It happened when the God of all peace reconciled the world to himself in Christ and changed the whole situation of humanity and our coming. That refers to points forward to the alteration of the condition of humanity when all we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and be given bodies of glory and there will be the gathering up of all things in the heavens and the earth, which God does on the basis of the blood of Christ's cross, as Colossians 1.20 says. So the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come and are coming with the greater and more complete tent or tabernacle, not made by human hands, that is, not of this creation. We're talking about a heavenly tent, a heavenly tabernacle. He entered once and for all through the sanctuary, that's the heavenly sanctuary into the Holy of Holies, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. We'll 
refer you to increment 300, where we dealt with that, with his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So two things happening here. One, he enters into the Holy of Holies with his own blood, but the second thing is really the first thing, having obtained already eternal redemption. Eternal redemption is the purification of sins, also known as the forgiveness of sins in Hebrews 1.3. For if the blood of bulls and goats, that's he goats and bulls literally, and the ashes of a young cow, that's the red cow offering, sprinkled on polluted people, he gives a smattering of samples of sacrifices of the Old Covenant here, not just the Yom Kippur offerings. If they sprinkled on polluted people, notice the word sprinkled, serve to sanctify for the purification of the body. And that word sarks there means of the person themselves, including the incomplete cleansing of the consciousness, as we'll see, then how much more, that means how much more completely will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, arguably this is referring to his offering of himself unblemished to God in heaven with his blood, the blood of the everlasting covenant, how much more will that blood purify our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. That means as the new priests of the new covenant. Now, here's the point that's exhortative or hortatory. The writer throughout this entire writing, this entire homily or sermon, is presenting an encouragement to these readers, some of whom had been flagging and lowering their guard and being tempted to return to Judaism where at least they had a sense of alleviation of a guilty conscience when they offered the animal sacrifices. They knew and believe that Jesus died for their sins, that he died on account of their sins, on account of the sins of the world, in fact. They probably understood that. They also understood that his death purified sins objectively. What they did not understand is that his blood had the power to cleanse and purify the consciousness of sins, which includes the very feelings of unresolved guilt. So he's trying to tell them, you, do, you don't need to go back there to perform works and sacrifices that will give you a temporary alleviation of your consciousness because I'm going to show you something about Jesus Christ. His offering of heavenly blood and his sprinkling of the blood in the heavens serves to more completely and perpetually purify your conscience. So there's the biggest reason why you should not return to Judaism and to the sacrifices that are offered that cannot take away sins and that cannot completely cleanse the conscience, Hebrews 9.9. 9.
So if the blood of he goats and bulls and ashes of a young cow sprinkled on polluted people served to sanctify for the purification of the flesh, and that means they're including the conscience, yes, we'll concede, that's true, that happened. Then how much more, though, completely, that is, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God in heaven and with his blood of the new covenant, Purify our conscience, or better in Hebrews, it's better to translate this synodesis as consciousness simply. Purify our consciousness from dead works so that we can serve the living God. In other words, you're much better off staying where you are and assembling together with this teaching than going back to Judaism. And because of this, he goes on to say, and he uses, he stacks metaphors here, he stacks doctrines, really, to show the reason why they should not return to Judaism. He said, because of this, that means by reason of his blood, he is the mediator of a new covenant, or will and testament. This is the only time in scripture and it's a remarkable innovation by the Hebrews author. This is what we mentioned in Sunday on the I-299, I increment 299. We should consider Hebrews not only as it relies upon the Old Testament, the Septuagint scriptures, and as it relies upon influencers like Paul, John, James, Peter, and others who heard the Lord. But we should also pay attention to Hebrews because of its independent value and because of its innovations. One of the innovations here is that understanding of the perpetual heavenly blood offering of Jesus Christ as distinguished from his earthly sacrifice where he purified sins. And secondly, there is this innovation. It's not as big, but it's a very important innovation. For the only time and first time, he likens or makes an analogy of covenant with testament or will in testament. I read one writer that said that this can't be such an analogy because will and testament as we know it wasn't practiced at the time but I researched that for about five minutes and found out that that's not true that Solon S-O-L-O-N one of the great leaders in ancient Greece instituted the idea of the last will and testament and that it was in fact practiced widely not only by Greeks but by Romans and so in the Greco-Roman world it was a common and well-known practice. So that he is making this analogy is perfectly sensible from the theological functional specialty of history as well as elsewhere. So he said, because of this, he's the mediator of a new covenant, verse 15. And in this case, or will and testament in this brief analogy, that a death, and that's the death of the cross of the Lord Jesus, the death that he died on the cross, has taken place for redemption. And so please notice this, a death has taken place for redemption. And that is the first act, as it were, of our saving 
grace, the salvation grace of Jesus Christ, his obtaining of eternal redemption. We've dealt with that a little bit and perhaps should do that again. That a death has taken place for redemption. And that redemption means for forgiveness of sins, apolutrosin or apolutrosin of transgressions committed under the first covenant means that those who are called may receive the fulfillment of the promise of an everlasting inheritance. Now, inheritance doesn't necessarily belong directly to covenant, though it does, but inheritance also belongs even more pointedly to a will and testament, which goes into effect only in the death of the testator. And so, again, he says, and he continues to say, that those who are called receive the fulfillment of the promise of an everlasting inheritance. Now, I could take off a little bit here on the called, those who are called, because in Hebrews 2.10, those that are called to glory, the sons and daughters that he's called to glory, seems to be a limited people. It seems to be a limited group of people within history. And so people have made the fatal doctrinal decision and determination to think that the rest of humanity perishes. But the called there, if you put it into the golden link chain of Romans, you have another story. And I think that this should be blended with the golden linked chain in Romans, where as many as God foreknew, he called. And as many as he called, he justified. As many as he justified, he glorified. Now, we already know from Romans 5.18 that he justified all and gave all life. So if the called are the same as the justified and the justified are all, then the called are ultimately all. Now, that's, that's a, a reasoning and a logic we could follow. The writer isn't specifically doing that, so I won't do that too often, but I will do it anyways because it's important. The inheritance that all inherit ultimately is all things. Because as Romans 8.32 says, how shall God not give us all things who has already given to us his son? And these things, the everlasting inheritance then is that which will be given on the basis of the fact that God's son was given for us all. And so it speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ in Ephesians 3.8. And we made the determination that the New Testament, as we call it, is rightly named because in a way, it's like the reading of a will and the inheritance that comes because of the death of the testator. It's a list, as it were, of all the things that God has freely given to us in Christ. The Holy Spirit makes it clear to us. And so the New Testament is a record of the unsearchable riches of Christ as our inheritance because of the death of a testator. So is the New Testament as a book properly named? I think so. For a will to take effect, it says, and that means a will in the sense of a will in testament. For a will to take effect, the death of the maker of the will, that is the testator, we've dealt with this before, to diathemenu, must be established or proven. Evidence, in other words, of a death 
must be proven. We're on the blood trail here. The evidence of death is blood. And so the blood of the covenant relates to the death of the testament, the testator. The death of the testator, the blood of the lamb. He's making a wonderful analogy here that we could even take off on, and I'm not gonna, I don't have time to do that in this one message, but I'm just bringing in some gems from the Johannine Gospel, or the fourth gospel, that it will blend in here. And I think only the Holy Spirit's going to make sense of it all, so we will continue. So again, he says in verse 16, a will to take effect, for a will to take effect, the death of the maker of the will, that is the testator, must be established or proven, evinced or evidenced. Verse 17, for a will goes into effect only when people die since it never is in force when the maker of the will, again, ho diathemenos here, is still alive. In this same vein, the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. What a brilliant innovation here. As a testament goes into effect, conveying its inheritance only on the death of the testator, so the first covenant is not inaugurated or made effective without blood. Without blood. The Old Testament, the archpriest went into the Holy of Holies once a year and never without blood. Hebrews 9.7. Now here I want to take up and go all the way to the end of the expositional and hortatory sermon. The sermon effectively ends in Hebrews 13:21 and with the statements of Hebrews 13:20 and 21 we have the climactic end of this epistle within or a homily within an epistle. Then we have greetings some of which sometimes some scholars think it was actually Paul writing the last few words. But in any case the Hebrews 13.20, here it is, right here. And I want to deal with the good and great shepherd of the sheep. The good shepherd and the great shepherd of the sheep are one person. The good shepherd of John, the great shepherd of the sheep of Hebrews is one and the same person. His name is Jesus Christ. Let's look at Hebrews 13.20 first. Now may the God of peace, that's the God who effected reconciliation or peace between himself and mankind, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, with the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with every good thing to do his will. Equip you with every good thing to do his will. And that blends with to serve the living God as priests in Hebrews 9.14. Creating in us what is delightful in his sight through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In Psalm 23.1, Yahweh is my shepherd. The Lord Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Not just the great shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, which indicates that he is for the sheep, in behalf of the sheep, not for himself, as the hireling is. 
In John 10, I am the good shepherd, in verse 11, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd is for the sheep. The hireling, or merely the hired mercenary, is for himself, as is the thief who comes to steal and rob and destroy. There's one thing between the hireling or the mercenary and the thief. They both share a livingness for themselves and not for the sheep. And so Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And this pictures the death of Jesus on account of sins and for sinners. In John 10:16, I have other sheep not of this fold. And so we're dealing with Jesus, the great archpriest, making a sacrifice for the sins of the people, the people being Israel. The people aren't the only sheep. There are sheep not of that fold, not of Israel. There are sheep not of the church, beyond the church, beyond the reach of the church. Then he said, I must lead them also. The great shepherd of the sheep leads sheep that are not just Israel, not just the church, but outside of Israel, outside of the church, presently at least. He's speaking of sheep outside of the fold that he must also lead. And they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock, one shepherd. One flock, all of humanity. One shepherd, one mediator between God and man. The one shepherd of the flock is the great shepherd of the sheep. This is a Johannine gem or a Johannine correspondence with the Hebrews' writing. The one shepherd of the one flock is the same as what Hebrews would call the great shepherd of the sheep. The Johannine one shepherd of the one flock is the Hebrews' great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus, who leads other sheep as well as the sheep of Israel, is the shepherd whom the God of peace led up from the realm of the dead, in Hebrews 13, 20. When this shepherd leads his sheep, he leads them up from the dead, too. That's the point. I have other sheep that I must lead, that is, up from the dead, if we blend these two. For as Jesus said in John 5, and I believe this is the Holman Christian Standard Bible, we're giving it kudos lately. Truly, truly, I say to you, says verse 25 of John, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Why now is? Well, he's referring to Lazarus for one thing, but he's also referring to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, us, who hear his voice and he makes us alive in Ephesians 2.5. But let's go on in verse 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, life meaning eternal life as an attribute, we could say, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority, verse 27, to execute judgment because he is the son of man. 
This is the Son of Man who in Luke 19.10 has come to seek and save that which is lost. He seeks the treasure in the field. He buys the field and saves the cosmos. He seeks the pearl of great price under the sea. He goes and sells all that he has to buy the pearl of great price. He finds the sheep, the lost sheep, so that he completes the flock of a hundred sheep. The Holy Spirit is like the woman who finds the lost coin so that the collection of ten coins is complete. He has authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The Son of Man who comes to seek and save the lost is the Son of Man to whom all judgment is entrusted. He has authority to execute judgment. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds, or the good literally, agathos, to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil, it's translated as evil deeds, but it's simply poneros, to a resurrection of judgment. Now, we've done this before, but this is a Johannine gem, which I call the judge and the judged. Now, there's some alliteration for you, a Johannine gem about the judge and the judged. A resurrection of judgment in this passage is a resurrection of justification. For God the judge is none other than the God who justifies, in Romans 8.33. God the judge of all, in Hebrews 12.23, committed judgment, all judgment, to Jesus the Son of Man. And so God who judges all, justifies all, Romans 4.5, Romans 5.18, because he commits judgment, all judgment, to the one who was willingly judged for us on the cross, the one who exposed himself to judgment on our behalf. And God, the judge of all, Hebrews 12.23, therefore is none other than God who justifies all. And so notice in John 5.30, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will, tothelema, of him who sent me. And so I ask this question after reading John 5.30. What is the will of him who sent me? Well, God our Savior wills, and the word is thele, same root word, thelema, T-H-E-L-E-M-A, A to E, second A. And then this word is the verb thele. And so, again, let's look at this. As I can, as I, I can do nothing on my own initiative, as I hear, I judge. The one who is given all judgment judges only as he hears the Father. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, what is that will? The will, God, our Savior, wills, says First Peter, First Timothy 2, 3, and 4. God, our Savior, wills, same word, thele, or same word group or semantic domain. He wills that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
What God wills, God does. He's not like a man. We will, but we don't do sometimes, if not a lot of times. We lie. We say we're going to do something, and we don't even intend to do it. We lie. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind about something. He will do all his will. What God wills, God does. Jeremiah 32, 19. He is mighty in his word and mighty in his deed. He will do all his will in Isaiah 46, 10. And his will is to save all men, all mankind. He has done all his saving will through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. For in Christ, God has reconciled the world of mankind to himself. He has delivered over for our sins, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was delivered over for our sins, the sins of the whole world, and raised up for our justification, the justification of the whole world. His one righteous act, as we found in Romans 5.18, resulted in justification and life for all. So when it says that some who did the evil will be raised to judgment, it must mean that they are raised to a judgment of justification and life. Those that have done the good, agathos, are raised to life. Now all of us None of us, in fact, there's none that does good, so we have a problem here. So we've all done evil. And then after we're saved, we may do the good. And so all human beings have done some good if they're in Christ. All human beings have done evil. The line runs through us all. So the, the judgment of the good and the evil is one judgment. The evil are raised to judgment called justification. The good, those that did the good, are raised to life because they've already been judged as righteous. And so there's a single outcome of judgment. That's a Johannine gem here. It isn't taught that way by people who just read straight the text and then don't let the Holy Spirit teach them. They see a double outcome of judgment here like John Calvin did, and therefore they come up with a deplorable and ugly and blasphemous doctrine of the limitation of election rather than seeing election as being in Jesus Christ and of Jesus Christ for all mankind. So his one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all, says Romans 5.18. So let's reason together. Consequently, a resurrection of judgment to those that have done evil things, all human beings have done evil things, is resurrection of justification and a resurrection of life to those that have done good things in a res is, is a resurrection, therefore, to life. But there are none who have done good things in Romans 3.10. So Jesus is speaking here of the single outcome of judgment. The last judgment, as it is called by traditional doctrine, is not as it is traditionally understood, a judgment with a double outcome. It is instead a judgment with a single outcome of justification and life, Romans 5.18, for all who have done evil and for all who have done good.
for the entire human race consists of people who have done both good and evil things. So notice now that the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and they are given eternal life by the shepherd in John 10, 27 and 28. For they hear his voice and follow him, meaning in resurrection. And the dead hear the voice of the Son of God and live. The sheep, hearing the voice of the great shepherd of the sheep, following him and receiving eternal life from him. They follow him and receive eternal life from him. That's the same as the dead hearing the voice of the Son of God and coming out of their graves and living. Let me say that again. This blends Romans 5 or John 5 with John 10, 27 and 28. The sheep hearing the voice of the great shepherd of the sheep, following him and receiving eternal life from him, is the same as the dead hearing the voice of the Son of God and coming up out of their graves and living. They follow Jesus out of death into life. If one died for all, then all died, and all are raised together with that one who died and in whom they died. They follow Jesus out of death into life. For when the one shepherd, the good shepherd, died for all, then all died. He died in order to be led up from the dead by the God of peace, and so all died in him in order to be led up from the dead by the same omnipotent grace and glory of the Father, in order in turn to be led by the one shepherd, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus and the Father are one in John 10.30. He who is our peace in Ephesians 2.14 is one with the God of peace in Hebrews 13.20. The God who made peace by the blood of the cross of the Son of his love in order to reconcile everything in the heavens and on earth. God reconciles everything in the heavens and on earth through the blood of, by the blood of Christ's cross, by blending the two acts of the Son of God, the one that he performed on earth, which is dying for sins on account of sins and for sinners, and his presentation of heavenly blood in the heavens. By those two offerings, he reconciles the heavens and the earth together, ultimately to blend the heavens and the earth and all who live in the heavens and the earth together into one redeemed reality of all created reality. Now, here's another Johannine gem. Without the pouring of blood, there is no forgiveness, says Hebrews 9.22. Now, the new covenant was made effective by blood, as a will and testament is in effect by death, a death, and upon evidence being provided for that death, the death of the maker of the will. Jesus made the will and said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, many meaning all. And the evidence of the death of the testator is blood and water, as we've seen. Blood and water 
And that has to do with the first coming of Jesus Christ, his first coming. And then the spirit as a witness is Jesus Christ coming in his second coming where he is with the church now. That's First John 5, 6. I want to go over something again in John that we went over before but with, the, with a couple of additions to it. And that is the death certificate of Jesus Christ or the actual presentation of the evidence of the death of the testator which therefore releases the conveyance of the inheritance, the eternal inheritance. In Hebrews 9.15, we have eternal inheritance. Hebrews 9.15, we have eternal redemption. 9.12, we have eternal salvation. 5.9, we have the eternal spirit. 9.14, we have lots of good eternities. 9.34, this is John writing as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Outside the circle of the twelve, inside a more intimate circle than the twelve, close to Jesus Christ, when all had forsaken him, this one stayed near the cross, John 19, 26, saw these events up close, saw the evidence of the death of the testator up close, and the death and the blood come together as one here. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side, that means between the ribs, plura, with his spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. Haima kai hudor. Haima kai hudor. And the one who saw this, that's the disciple whom Jesus loved, the author of the Johannine Gospel, and I believe the Johannine Apocalypse called Revelation, and the Alpha, Beta, and Gamma John Epistles. The one who saw this, this Johannine author, who saw Jesus in the most intimate, the most immediate way with his physical eyes, saw him dead, saw the death of the maker of the will, the mediator of the new covenant, and the evidence of that death with blood and water that immediately came out of Jesus' side. So let's read 35. The one who saw this has borne witness and his testimony is true. Why is it true? One, because he's an eyewitness, and he knows that he's telling the truth. How does he know he's telling the truth? This witness has come to an unconditional conclusion as to the fact of Jesus' death, having been presented incontestable proof by the water and the blood, as well as the testimony of the Spirit. So he knows that what he's saying is true. How many people say that? I know that what I'm saying is true. And what they're saying isn't true at all. They are subjectively certain of an uncertainty. Or they're lying. John knows that what he's saying is true. Because he's gone through the cognitive theory that Lonergan spoke about. He's asked the question. He's received the insight. He's reflected upon the insight. He's got so many proofs that he said he couldn't list them all in all the books and all the libraries of the world. Of course, that's hyperbole. But he's saying there's so many stacks upon stacks of evidentiary realities and scriptures and the Holy Spirit's witness and my eyewitness, he says, that it is incontestable. I know that what I'm saying is true. I can say that about Jesus Christ. I know that Jesus Christ is reality. I know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
I know that he has died for my sins and your sins and the sins of the whole world and that he's died for sinners and that he's died on account of sins. I know that he's raised from the dead. I know that this testimony of mine about him is true in the same way that John knew, only John even in a more profound sense. He knows that he's telling the truth. He's speaking in the third person of himself so that you may also believe. Believe there means make the decision to believe and therefore to also know incontestably. For these things happen just the way, just this way, he said. These things happened just this way so that the scripture would be fulfilled not one of his bones will be broken. That, of course, is the witness of Exodus 12:46, Numbers 9:12, and of the Psalms in Psalm 34:20 about the Lamb of God, the righteous one. So the blood of the Lamb and the death of the testator comes together right here, a most brilliant and crowded with insights section of Scripture, a Johannine gem. You look at it from any angle, and it has wonderful, splendid light and coloration. How does the disciple whom Jesus loves know absolutely that he's telling the truth? I'll ask again. Partly because of the witness of the blood and the water that he sees with his own eyes, up close and personal. And also the spirit, the eternal spirit bears witness. This ideal witness has received the insight that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the shepherd is the lamb, the priest is the offering, the offerer is the offering, the judge is the judged, Jesus Christ is everything. This ideal witness has reflected on this idea, this proclamation that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, spoken by John in 129. He's reflected on it. He's taken in countless proofs, some of which are in the fourth gospel, others which this piece of writing, as well as all the books that ever written, could not contain and explain. He's come to the unconditioned judgment that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that his death is the death of the testator and the fulfillment of the all-saving will of the Father. That is, his will to save all mankind. Not only this, but, and we've looked at this before, and I want to hit this once again. I've got to nail this nail a little deeper into our stream of consciousness. The elder, I think it's the same as the beloved disciple, only an older, uh, older man. In 1 John 5, 6, says this, This one is he who came. This speaks of the first coming of Jesus Christ. There are three under one consideration, as we've said. In the first coming, he comes in the days of his flesh, his life of obedience to the Father, culminating in his passion and death for sins, on account of sins and for sinners. He came by water and blood. That means at the culmination of his first coming, there was the witness of the water and the blood coming from his side in John 19.34, giving evidence of the death of the testator. Jesus Christ, he says, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. This is the death certificate of the testator. 
if we want to blend this with the innovation of the Hebrew writer in 9:15 to 17, the proof of the death of the testator. But then he adds this, and the spirit is the one who testifies, for the spirit is the truth. The spirit is the truth. The spirit accompanies Jesus in his second coming. For as Jesus went to the heavens with his blood, a perpetual heavenly blood offering to purify our conscience. So Jesus also comes to us in the Spirit or with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness to these things right now in this present time to us on the level of our own time in the year of our Lord 2023 and beyond. And so we have confidence, we have assurance, and we have this assurance and we have this clarity of thinking. We have this purity in our conscience. We've been purified from dead works. We don't have to do religious works or works of altruism or works of virtue signaling. We have a purified consciousness through the offering of the perpetual heavenly blood of Jesus. We have the forgiveness of sins through his death on the cross. We have the purification of our consciousness through the blood of Jesus. That's why the beginning of the final and climactic hortatory section of Hebrews in Hebrews 10:19 begins with this, having therefore confidence by the blood of Jesus, having confidence by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near, let us draw near. It's a matter of access to the living God to serve as priests to go into the holy of holies ourselves, to go into the throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need, and to find it for other people in intercession and prayer. And so the Spirit is the one who testifies, for the Spirit is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Spirit is the truth inasmuch as he is the very truth that Jesus is in his incarnation. Jesus is in his divine humanity. Now, according to Hebrews 9:12 and 13:20, and this may be a briefer message than you're used to, but I hope you'll consider the things I've said in this message tonight. Now, according to Hebrews 9:12 and 13:20, the great shepherd of the sheep has been brought up from the realm of the dead with the blood of the everlasting covenant, having obtained eternal redemption. He obtained eternal redemption in his earthly offering, suspended, as it were, between heaven and earth, at the end of which he says to Telestai, he has finished the work of the, for the forgiveness of sins. And... Then he ascends to heaven. Don't cling to me, Mary. I have not yet ascended to my Father. To do what? To bring the blood of the everlasting covenant, the perpetual blood offering in heaven, where he appears right now for us. It's this understanding of this word that purifies our conscience completely and perpetually so that we do not have to do works of penance or works to assuage a guilty conscience. We can be cleansed of the feelings of guilt and the feelings of dread and the feelings of torment 
which is the expectation of what we think we deserve of punishment because we don't know that Jesus received the judgment by which punishment for sins and punishment for us was taken away in the propitiation. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost by his earthly offering. He entered into heaven itself with his own blood, his heavenly blood offering, by which he perpetually and completely purifies the consciousness of sins. And this is the beauty of the innovation of the writer of Hebrews, the pastor teacher, that blessed pastor teacher, who said all that we're studying now in 302 hours. He said it all in less than one hour in a sermon. And we thank you, Father, for this wonderful sermon that we have called Hebrews. This homily, this heaven-sent homily, we pray that you'll use it to edify and strengthen the hearers. We pray that you'll use it to truly bring people to a decisive purgation of their conscience, of a decisive purification of our consciousness of sins, to free us from dead works, to purge us from dead works of empty and dead religion, that we may be truly serving you, worshiping you in spirit and truth, serving you in newness of spirit, living in newness of life as a new covenant community in our time. Make us effective to draw others to you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.